Welcome back to the Mint Podcast. Hello and welcome to podcast number four in our podcast series for Mint. Uh, this podcast is going to be on rheumatology and yet again we have most of the crew here today with Helena being a notable exception due to exams but we've got our co-chair here with us today Lauren via zoom in Mount Isa mind you and we've also got Vicky hey guys how's it going Vicky and my name's Hamish and um, of course we have our super intern uh, everyone's favourite Sri Lankan, Ramesh. Hey, Ramesh. Thanks for the intro. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, Ramesh. All right. Well, as we said, we're going to talk about rheumatology um, and some common musculoskeletal conditions today. Um, going to hand it over to the leader of the show, Ramesh, to kick us off. All right. Sweet. Thanks, Hamish. So, like he said, he, we're going to talk about rheumatology. Um, and for med school, it really just revolves around joint pain and how to approach that. So let's talk about a patient's coming in to your practice or ED and they're saying they got joint pain. Like with everything, with every presenting complaint, you should start having a list of differentials running through your mind even before you've seen the patient. So there's a few ways to approach joint pain. Personally, I find the most simplest is to just split it up into whether it's mono or whether it's poly because there's different causes for each. So Victoria, do you want to talk to us about what could potentially cause a single painful um, red hot swollen joint? Sure thing, Ramesh. So some of the monoarthritis include septic arthritis. Definitely do not want to miss that one. Uh, trauma to a joint. Then there's gout or pseudo gout, as well as hemarthroses. Uh, so they're the big four for monoarthritis, but there's also seronegative spondyloarthritis and osteoarthritis, which can also present in that way, but are more commonly a polyarthritis. Other polyarthritis presentations include rheumatoid arthritis, and then again, the seronegative spondyloarthritis, osteoarthritis, um, gout and pseudogout, and then the connective tissue diseases. So these can be things like systemic lupus erythematosus, scleroderma, Sjogren's disease, sarcoid, and vasculitis. Um, other causes of polyarthritis are also infections. So patients getting viral infections um, and also rheumatic fever. Very good, cool. So that's a good uh, list to have um, and very thorough. So if you want to narrow these differentials down, you need to start taking a good history, um, trying to rule in or rule out your differentials. And this is how you should be approaching all your OSCE stations as well. Um, so how about we talk about history? What would you sort of ask? Um, yeah, Ramesh, I can take this yeah. one. So obviously a painful joint, perfect time to employ your Socrates acronym. And as T-Pain said, if you don't got it by now, you just ain't getting it. But we need to ask more questions to continue narrowing down that differential diagnosis. So always ask which joints are involved. Um, and for a bonus, you can specifically ask them to, to point out to you which joints. You need to differentiate between arthralgia and arthritis. And you can do this by simply asking if they have any swelling. Are the changes symmetrical? So, for example, are both hands affected? Are both feet affected? Is this uh, pain acute or is it chronic? Has it been getting better or getting worse? Uh, and we need to talk about recent infections, 
Uh, we need to talk about or ask about trauma uh, to the joints as well. So don't forget about how the pain affects their day-to-day -day function. Um, their answer may actually modify the intensity of the treatment that they require. For example, you know, can they wait there? Um, and then for more specific questions, so your focused history taking, like we talk about specifically in fourth year, you can include questions such as, you know, whether the joints, uh, the symptoms in the joint rather are worse after rest. And this kind of points towards a rheumatoid uh, kind of picture. Um, do they have specifically early morning stiffness, um, which sort of indicates synovial inflammation? Um, if it's worse at night after exercise, uh, worse at the end of the day, for example, points towards osteoarthritis. So obviously we're always, you know, we're not done at the end of that. We need to think about risk factors um, specifically. So, you know, we're going to get into this a bit later on when we talk about specific conditions. But for example, you know, gout, you need to think about it. Were they using thiazide, diuretics, recent heavy alcohol intake? Uh, are they on other particular medications or chemotherapies? Uh, new diagnosis of renal failure, that, that kind of thing. Septic arthritis, you know, do they have any immunosuppressive conditions? Do they have a prosthetic joint? Um, and, you know, if you're thinking that way as well, it's completely reasonable to ask a sexual history. A heme arthrosis, so bleeding into a joint, you know, do they have a history of bleeding disorders? Are they on any coagulants? Is it a traumatic injury? Um, and reactive arthritis as well. So recent GI illnesses is a big one um, and recent uh, urethral infections. Um, history as well, associated symptoms, always important to ask. So you always get, you know, marks on the OSCEs for these ones. Skin changes, rashes, you know, for example, red eye, uh, dry eye and mouth. So thinking of Schrogen syndrome there. A history of autoimmune conditions as well. Um, extra, extra bonus points. What previous treatments have they been on if they already have some sort of diagnoses? Um, and a family history is always helpful too. So I'll put it back to you, Ramesh. Great. That was really good. Um, so then after history, we logically go on to exam. Um, so what do you think, Vic? What, what, what big things do you want to do on a um, joint exam? Well, uh, Ramesh, the exam is actually dependent on what joints are affected. So the usual approach is to examine the normal side first and then follow that up with the affected joint. Um, and then you also cover the one above and the one below. So for example, if your elbow is affected, um, then you need to examine the wrist as well as the shoulder and compare to the other side. So like every other physical uh, exam you do, you start with general inspection and vital signs but particularly pay attention to how these patients walk into the consult room or how they move when they roll up their sleeves or their pants or um, when they take the, off their shirt um, to allow a better look at the affected joints. Have they got any range of movement limitation in these movements? Um, then you actually move on to looking at the joint itself. Uh, you make sure they're in a, a comfortable position and whether that be hand examination, resting them on, on a pillow or lying them comfortably in bed when you examine their knee. Um, just make sure that you're not causing them pain in all this. Uh, that would indicate that you're doing it wrong. Um, so what does the joint look like? Is it swollen? Then you have a look at colour, so looking for er any erythema. Are there any visible deformities in that joint? So you might see things like subluxation or dislocation. Then you can look for different nodules or scars or any atrophy in the muscles. Um, after you inspect, you palpate. So um, palpate for temperature. Uh, is it warm? Is it cold? 
uh, is it actually fluctuant or is the joint firm? Is there any bony swellings at all? Um, is the joint actually tender to palpation and ask the patient that? And then do you feel any crepitus on joint movement? After that, you start with the movements. So you look at passive and active movement um, and then check if there's any limitation to that. Um, and if there is, you clarify whether that's because the patient's in pain or if there's a physical block. Um, then you can check if the joint's stable, test for function of the joint, um, and you can ask specifically for things like grip strength or opposition, such as opposition of the thumb. Um, and then there are also some special tests you can do, and that depends on which joint it is. Cool. Thanks, Vic. Um, so make sure you guys read up on the hand exam. It's a very popular um, station to have, so make sure you have good exam findings for each diagnosis. Would you like to go through any of them, Vic? Any specific hand findings for each diagnosis? Yeah, sure. Um, so we'll start with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, what you're looking for there is actually ulnar deviation um, of the fingers. You can also get anterior subluxation at the metacarpophalangeal joints. Uh, commonly, patients get a a swan neck deformity and boutonniere deformities. There's also the Z deformity of the thumb, which can happen. Um, and definitely look at the patient's elbows in these cases. They can get rheumatoid nodules there. Um, then osteoarthritis, for example, you want to look for a squaring of the carpometacarpal joint of the thumb. And then you can look at the fingers for any hebidens or Bouchard's nodes um, and feel for any bony swellings in the wrist as well. Um, psoriasis uh, in particular, so psoriatic arthropathy, you look for those sausage-shaped digits. Um, in the nails, there are actually quite a few findings here. So you can find pitting, ridging, onycholysis. Um, there's also can be plaques over the extensive surface of the elbows. Um, gout as well, you can look for tophi and the olecranon bursa. Awesome. Great. So um, these findings are actually, so a lot, there's a lot of volunteer patients that actually do have osteoarthritis. So the, the patients you'll get in your OSCE or in real life will have these findings. So make sure you know what it looks like and you're not just, you know, um, reading it off a paper. Um, so make sure you know what they look like. Look up pictures, look up your tally pictures and you'll know what it is. Um, okay, great. So let's start moving on to our conditions. Um, I think we'll start off with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, Lauren, do you want to take this away? What is rheumatoid arthritis? So basically rheumatoid arthritis is a chronic inflammatory disorder of autoimmune origin. It can affect many tissues and organs, um, but principally attacks the joints, producing a non-supportive, proliferative and inflammatory synovitis. It often progresses to joint destruction and ankylosis. The typical presentation of these patients is often a middle-aged woman presenting with morning stiffness lasting more than one hour and improving with use. They usually like typically complain of um, pain in the small joints of the hands and feet, such as the MCP and MTP joints, and the joint involvement is typically symmetric. Sometimes patients also get constitutional symptoms, such as a low-grade fever, myalgia, malaise, fatigue, weight loss, and night sweats. Great, awesome. Um, do you want to just briefly go through the pathogenesis of rheumatoid arthritis? Yeah, so it's quite 
complex and poorly understood, but it's believed that the condition is multifactorial um, with the classic triad of genetics, environmental factors and autoimmunity all playing, playing a role. Um, basically, the, both the genetic and environmental factors contribute to the breakdown of tolerance to self-antigens. So um, for genetics specifically, it's estimated that 50% of the risk of developing RA is related to genetic factors, um, particularly um, noting the HLA um, gene. Environmentally, things like smoking and infections can trigger RA onset. And usually you've got the genetic and environmental factors happening concurrently. And then basically this um, leads to a failure of tolerance and unregulated lymphocyte activation. These T cells then go on to cause cytokine mediated inflammation. And um, sometimes you can also get the classic rheumatoid factor, which is the serum IgM autoantibodies against the IgG. Um, so to take from that, it is complex. Um, just know it briefly and know, know the genetics, environment, autoimmunity lines, because that might be a question. That's all you'll need to say. Um, and know, know what is involved in terms of what is rheumatoid factor and whatnot. Okay, so moving on to clinical features, which you've already kind of discussed, but do you want to go through that, Lauren? Yeah, so things to note is that in addition to MCP joint involvement, there's frequently PIP and wrist involvement. Um, typically, the distal joints are not affected. So if you find involvement of these joints, it may be a good idea to rethink your diagnosis. As well, you should also be on the lookout for atlantoaxial subluxation, which indicates C-spine instability. Patients may complain of cervical radiculopathy with peripheral paresthesias as well as pain and of the neck and this is especially should be wary of performing any airway maneuvers due to the risk of worsening subluxation and causing potential spinal cord compression aside from the joints there can be also a number of extra articular manifestations the list is long long but a few pertinent examples include um, in the skin you can get rheumatoid nodules um, which are the non-tender firm subcutaneous swellings the lungs um, can be affected with fibrosis or rheumatoid pulmonary nodules. You can get scleritis in the eyes, carpal tunnel syndrome, pericarditis um, in the heart and a higher risk of MI overall and stroke. And hematologically, um, patients can get anemia of chronic disease, neutropenia or um, splenomegaly, which usually also should be on the lookout for Felty syndrome if this is occurring. Yeah, cool. So when you get the rheumatoid pulmonary nodules, that's called Kaplan syndrome. And then I think Felty syndrome is neutropenia with the splenomegaly with rheumatoid arthritis. So that's correct. Mm. Um, so do you want to go on to diagnosis, Lauren? Yeah, so diagnostically, you make um, your decision clinically, but you also use associated factors like your autoantibodies and evidence of systemic inflammation, such as an elevated ESR or CRP. So when you've um, got a patient who you think might have RA, things to test include rheumatoid factor. So rheumatoid factor doesn't really correlate with disease activity, but if you do find it, it has an 80% sensitivity that is very nonspecific for RA alone. 
Other things include the anticyclic citronellic peptide, which has an a, also an 80, 80% sensitivity, but is much more specific. Um, you also want to do a full blood count, looking for um, low hemoglobin or high platelets, and the ESR or CRP could be elevated. You can also do imaging modalities, so um, x-rays of the affected joints, and particularly you're probably going to be doing x-rays of the um, bilaterally hands, wrists, ankles, or feet, whatever is affected. And initially you can get um, periarticular osteopenia followed by erosions of cartilage and bone. Um, it's also important to do a C-spine x-ray. And classically in all of these um, joints, the um, findings that the four main findings that you're looking out for can be summarised in a really good mnemonic, which is less. So L is for loss of joint space, E for erosions, S for soft tissue swelling, and S for soft bones or osteopenia. So thanks, Lauren. Ramesh, I understand that there's a diagnosis criteria for rheumatoid arthritis. I was just wondering whether the fourth and fifth years would be keen to know about that one. What are your thoughts? Um, I think it'll be good to have in mind. You don't need to memorize it all, I don't think, but it's good to keep in mind to know what is involved in actually diagnosing it. So I think it's called the ACR criteria. Um, so yeah, I think it's good to look up, have a look at it, don't memorize it, but it will help in knowing what the criteria entails. Hmm. Cool. Awesome. And in addition, so for rheumatoid arthritis, it's the mnemonic is less. And then we'll talk about osteoarthritis later. They'll classically show, show like a knee x-ray and you need to know which one is which. So if you just say all those four mnemonic things, you'll be fine. Um, but yeah, we'll move on to treatment. Lauren, do you want to tell us about treatment? Yeah. So... For RA, your goals of therapy include remission or the lowest possible disease activity. And the key factors for this are early diagnosis and early intervention with um, DMARD, so disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. You should start these as soon as an RA diagnosis is made. And typically, methotrexate is your gold standard and first line unless contraindicated. Um, side effects of methotrexate to know about include rash, hepatotoxicity, interstitial pneumonitis, and bone marrow suppression. So we also make sure to give folic acid as well. Um, biologics should be considered if there's inadequate response to DMARDs after three months of therapy. And your first line options within these are anti-TNF therapies such as infliximab, adalimumab, and enteronacept. Other things you can recommend to patients include NSAIDs and corticosteroids, but again, looking out for contraindications to these. And occasionally surgery may be indicated for structural joint damage. Other non-pharmacological measures include gentle exercise during flares and strengthening exercise between flares. Intervention should also be taken to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, i.e. smoking cessation, uh, lipid control, and um, SNAP in general, given the increased risk overall. Beautiful. Okay, so um, that sums up treatment well. Um, 
Shall we go on to the other arthritis, osteoarthritis? Um, do you want to take over that, Hamish? Yeah, 100%. So osteoarthritis, probably the most common arthritis, you'd say, Ramesh, that's gone around? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so chronic disease, progressive deterioration of articular cartilage and surrounding joint structures. Two types. So your classic OA is your primary osteoarthritis. Um, and secondary osteoarthritis. So generally from trauma, uh, metabolic, uh, post-infection, and some endocrine diseases. Osteoarthritis is very common. It's greater than 50% of people over 65 will uh, have this condition. Um, so high-yield things, you probably need to look for to differentiate it from other um, arthritides. Um, so symptoms will only be localized to the joints. Usually these patients don't have any associated systemic features related specifically to osteoarthritis. The timing um, of the onset of osteoarthritis is often insidious. So it's a progressive uh, disease with intermittent flares. Um, so it's characterized by pain, stiffness and swelling in the affected joints. But pain is often increased with motion. Um, I like to think of it that during motion in osteoarthritis, the joint is grinding together and causing pain. Whereas in the inflammatory arthritis, motion sort of relieves the pain as it pushes all those inflammatory cells out of the joint as the person moves. So that's just a little thing that I uh, like to think about when I'm thinking about osteoarthritis. Um, stiffness usually quickly resolves, and this can be accompanied by joint instability or the sensation of buckling uh, or locking. Um, in the inflammatory arthritis, stiffness is ongoing for sometimes, you know, greater than an hour. Um, and the joint pattern is different between osteoarthritis and, and the other types of arthritis, you know. Um, osteoarthritis can involve a single joint or it could be multiple. Um, it does have a predilection for the distal joints in the fingers um, and then your major joints like the hips, the knees uh, and the spine. Osteoarthritis, it's important to... Uh, state is a clinical diagnosis so your bloods uh your blood tests won't necessarily help you here you won't have inflammatory synovial fluid uh you can definitely get uh, x-ray changes but often these are very poorly correlated uh with symptoms so um there's a little table that we can put up to accompany what we've just said today um yeah Awesome, great. And we've already discussed what we'll see on examination for osteoarthritis. So what, what do we typically see on the x-ray compared to rheumatoid arthritis, Hamish? Yep, so uh, an excellent mnemonic to remember the x-ray changes in OA is loss. So the L stands for loss um, of joint space. The O stands for osteophytes. Uh, the first S is for subchondral sclerosis and the fourth S is for subchondral cysts. Great. Awesome. So they both have loss of joint space, rheumatoid and osteo, but in rheumatoid, the loss of joint space will be symmetrical and the loss of joint space in osteoarthritis will be asymmetrical. Awesome. So how do we manage osteoarthritis, Hamish? Yep. So this one is falls under that chronic disease model of care that we love to talk about at JCU. So stuff like education, lifestyle advice, optimize the comorbid conditions, 
refer these patients to physio and occupational therapy if necessary. Um, very good evidence uh, to lose weight um, and for exercise. So things like uh, Tai Chi, I think, is really useful for osteoarthritis, helpful one for exams. Um, and then heat packs and topical NSAIDs and things like that are always helpful. Um, in terms of pharmacotherapy for these guys, so orally um, NSAIDs uh, are always reasonable to state in an OSCE, but be careful of the patient's contraindications. Um, you know, they have a greater efficacy in OA, but uh, you have to be careful of, you know, the side effects and things like that. So prescribe with caution. Um, Panadol and Eurofen always reasonable to say as required for the patient. Um, patients often will respond in the short term, at least to corticosteroid uh, injections into the joint itself can be from one month up to three months. Um, but this is not a disease modifying treatment. It's just simply for uh, pain relief, essentially, and symptom control. Um, other things that you can talk about or think about at least is glucosamine and chondroitin. Um, these things have, you know, average to poor evidence um, for both of these conditions. So I would leave that to the very last thing to say on an OSCE. Um, and then of course, you know, last stage, end of the road, these patients uh, should be referred to the orthopedic surgeons for joint replacement, but we don't talk about surgery in mint. So we'll move on. <laughs> awesome. So that's a great summary of osteoarthritis. Um, we can move on to septic arthritis now. So I think Victoria wants to talk about that one. Um, do you want to take that? Vic? Absolutely, Ramesh. So septic arthritis is actually an important one not to miss. It's a medical emergency um, because it's the most rapid and destructive of the joint diseases and has a 10% mortality. Uh, so the majority of septic arthritis is so that because of hematogenous spread um, and they mostly affect large joints of the body. Um, they can also be from direct puncture wounds, though, into the joint. So things like bite wounds or trauma and then arthroscopy or other surgeries and even intra-articular injections can be a cause. Uh, clinical feature-wise, the joint will look red, hot and be swollen. Uh, the patient will have a fever and there'll be a sudden onset of pain at rest and with movement and they may have restrictive range of the movement of that joint yeah so investigation wise uh you can get a joint aspirate so they'll check that in the lab on gram stains they'll culture it they'll get a cell count and differential and also check for crystals um, you'll also need to get a blood culture on the patient as well as full blood count to check for white cells um, crp as well for inflammatory marker and an sti screen as well if you suspect that as being the culprit organism um, the most common organism, though, is Staphylococcal aureus. Um, in young sexually active adult, adults, though, you can think of disseminated gonococcal. Um, if, the, if it's a child and they're unvaccinated, think of Haemophilus influenzae. And if they have sickle cell disease, um, Salmonella could be the cause. Uh, so how do we manage this? Um, we admit the patient, we give them analgesia, and we give them IV antibiotics. And typically it's IV flucloxacillin. And this is if the patient is low risk for things like MRSA. Um, they may need referral to, they will need referral to the orthopedics and they'll need an IV cons consult as well. 
Awesome. Um, so it's really important to uh, not miss this and say, state that it will be an emergency. Um, make sure you always get a tap and have an idea of the bugs that can cause septic arthritis because they're quite common MCQs. Um, another classic one is um, post-orthopedic shoulder procedures. Um, a classic bug can be Propionobacterium acnes. Um, so know those bugs, um, they can come up. So that's awesome. Uh, we'll move on to gout. Hamish. Back to me. Yeah. All right. So gout, chronic, uh, no, it's not. Well, it can be. It's an inflammatory disease caused by a deposition of monosodium urate monohydrate crystals in and around synovial joints, secondary to hyperuricemia. Um, and look, there's a definition of hyperuricemia that you don't necessarily need to know, but there is some terminology that's really important uh, when discussing gout. So gout itself is a crystal-induced arthropathy, okay? And then you have the term acute gouty arthritis, which is the inflammatory response to the deposition of monosodium urate crystals into the joint. You then have chronic tophaceous gout, which is the third term. So this is when acute gout and hyperuricemia chronically have not been controlled. So, so for example, I think it's greater than 12 years after the acute initial attack, but we'll fact check that. <laughs> and then there's TOFI. So the concept of TOFI itself, which is a swollen, just the swollen uh, nodules within the joint. So this is the most common inflammatory arthritis in men and in older women. Um, males are five times more likely to get this than females and an overall prevalence of about one or 2%. Um, in parallel with increased longevity, high prevalence of the metabolic syndrome, gout is becoming increasingly uh, more common. It's interesting to note, so a high-ish percentage of the population or a reasonable percentage of the population will actually be uh, hyperuricemic if you blood test everyone in the population, but you know, only a minority of these people will actually go on to develop gout. Um, so we can talk briefly about um, the causes of hyperuricemia. Um, and there are tables everywhere in your textbooks and over the internet. Um, but essentially, you know, you break it up into diminished renal excretion, um, increased intake, or the overproduction of uric acid. So it's helpful to just know maybe one to two in each of those categories, just so you can spit something out to the examiner if they were to ask you. Um, so I might just quickly just state, you know, diminished renal excretion, you're thinking about things like renal failure um, and your drugs like thiazide, diuretics, uh, for example, and alcohol, of course. Increased intake, um, things like, you know, red meat, seafood, offal, this is a rare cause of uh, gout caused by hyperuricemia. Um, and then your third one, your overproduction of uric acid. Um, so your diseases like myeloproliferative and lymphoproliferative disease, uh, psoriasis can cause an overproduction of uric acid. Um, and then rare things like glycogen storage diseases and things like that. Great. Um, so... So they sort of revolve all around the risk factors we discussed earlier. Um, how do these patients normally present, um, Hamish? 
Sure. So I think it might be useful in GAT to talk about the clinical stages of GAT because we've kind of alluded to the um, history and exam-ish earlier on. So GAT tends to occur in four stages. So you have asymptomatic hyperuricemia. So this, you know, people who become hyperuricemic in males, this will come on around puberty and women generally after menopause. Um, a then smaller proportion of that population will go on to develop an acute gouty arthritis. And this is generally a monoarthritis, 50% um, of which will affect the first MTP joint. Um, and this is called podagra. Um, it rarely will affect the axial skeleton um, or the proximal large joints. Very rapid onset, two to six hours to peak severity. Um, the patient will wake up. So very severe pain, worst pain ever, extreme tenderness, um, and it's marked by severe swelling, overlying red, shiny skin, limited range of motion. Um, gout's actually a self-limiting condition, so it will completely resolve within five to 14 days if you don't do anything. Um, obviously, you will treat these patients because it's severely painful, but it is self-limiting condition. Um, sometimes these patients may be systemically unwell with an accompanying fever or malaise. So an important differential is obviously aseptic arthritis. Um, and then on convalescence of the condition, they will get pruritus around the joint. Um, the overlying skin will desquamate. So the skin will essentially come off. And then we've talked about, uh, physical examinations. We'll cut that. So stage three is this thing called intercritical gout. So you have an asymptomatic period after the resolution of an acute attack. Um, and then stage four is chronic tophaceous gout. So repeated attacks uh, cause the disease to progress to the chronic stage where there is chronic uh, pain and joint damage, uh, which can occasionally cause severe deformities and functional impairments. So crystals deposit within the joints and produce these nodules that we talked about earlier called TOFI or TOFI. Um, commonly on the extensor surfaces, Achilles tendon, um, the helix of the ear, um, and they are generally whitish in colour, um, and they can ulcerate. Mm, great. Um, and how would you sort of work this patient up? Right, Aramesh. Yep. So, you know, we alluded to it earlier, but always in a patient with a hot, swollen and painful joint, you need to think first about a separate uh, septic arthritis, sorry, and then you think about um, your differentials. But the, the, the investigation that's going to lead you to the diagnosis here is an aspirate of either the joint, the bursa itself, or just getting an aspirate of the TOFI. Um, a serum uric acid level will not help you um, just because we talked about earlier, a substantial proportion of the population will be hyperuricemic and not have gout. So it can't confirm the diagnosis, but it can help treatment once you've established a diagnosis where you're targeting certain uric acid level ranges. As a workup for these patients, you're going to do a full blood count. You're going to do a uh, UNEs, uh, a formal blood glucose as well as always helpful lipid profile. These patients commonly have the metabolic syndrome um, and the fourth year examiners hate them, but ESR and CRP are always ordered in these patients. An X-ray will be taken for these guys. You can't see crystals on film, um, but it can be useful, especially sort of in the chronic setting to identify joint damage. 
Awesome. And then how do we manage these patients once we've clinched our diagnosis? Right. So obviously you want to treat a secondary cause or, well, the cause of the gout, for example, you know, obvious reversible causes like renal failure or alcohol abuse in the acute setting. And you want to minimize the risk factors over a period of time, like the metabolic syndrome, but in an acute gouty flare, um, there's a few drugs you can choose from, and these are generally, the decision is generally made based on sort of specific patient factors, you know, what other drugs they're on, the adverse effect profile, and even the cost to the patient. Um, so your choice is essentially uh, four uh, in total. So a local corticosteroid injection, um, you can do an NSAID orally until the symptoms abate. You can do a PRED orally until symptoms abate, um, or colchicine orally as a single one day course. So that's in your acute phase. You then have long-term urate lowering therapy, which the patient will be on for life. Um, all patients with a confirmed diagnosis of gout in whatever stage that they are diagnosed in will be recommended to go on lifelong urate therapy. Um, allopurinol, a xanthine oxidase inhibitor, is generally the one that people go to. Um, you want to aim to a lower serum uric acid level um, and hopefully the concentration that you're aiming to will dissolve existing uh, crystals, prevent new ones from forming, reduce the frequency and severity of acute attacks and kind of resolves TOFI. Now, guys, it's interesting that if you start urate lowering therapy or increase a dose, this will actually be associated with an increased likelihood of, of uh, a gap flare. And therefore, you have to cover this with either prednisolone uh, or colchicine whilst you're starting that urate-lowering therapy over the long term. And as always, when we're talking about management of conditions, you need to be aware of non-pharmacological management as well. So you want to avoid foods with a high purine content, uh, for example, red meats and things like that. You obviously want the patient to uh, lower their alcohol intake, lose some weight, all those sorts of things. Awesome, man. We didn't mention, but when you do the tap, um, what are the sort of classic crystals you see, Hamish? Um, yeah, what are they? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so they're just the monosodium. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're monosodium urate crystals. <laughs> yeah. So they'll look like needle and they'll be positively bifendrate. Yeah, because they're Yeah, sure. That's right. All right. Maybe I didn't up. know the answer. Oh, okay. Clap. <laughs> Stop. Didn't know they looked like needles. Well, I knew that. I thought like that. Yeah. Okay. Do I just clap? No. Yeah, just clap in there. Okay, and we didn't mention before, um, but when you do the tap, the crystals you'll see will be needle-shaped and they'll be negatively bifindrate. So you might get a picture in an MCQ and you'll have to say that it's gout. So we'll move on to pseudo-gout now. Yeah, I can talk about that one. Good. Um, just love the gouts. So this one is a uh, joint inflammation caused by a different thing called calcium pyrophosphate dihydrate crystals, a fun one. The pathogenesis isn't really known that well, but the risk factors include older age, osteoarthritis, and neuropathic joints. Um, and then there are some associated diseases, so hyperparathyroidism, pardon me, hypothyroidism, diabetes mellitus, and hemochromatosis. Um, most commonly affects the knee and will resemble gout in clinical presentation. 
A joint aspirate um, can provide symptom relief, so diagnostic and therapeutic, um, and sometimes no further treatment will actually be required. Um, in terms of sort of other demographics, the, it's equal amongst the genders, whereas gout has a predilection more towards the males. Has a slower onset of disease uh, than gout, so it can actually be up to three weeks the patients uh, will take to present. Um, the crystal type is obviously different, so you're aspirating uh, those calcium pyrophosphate dihydrate crystals rather than the monosodium urate ones. Um, distribution we've talked about as well, um, and the treatment is less so urate lowering therapy and more just simply supportive, so NSAIDs, steroids, things like that. Very good. Um, and then on, if you do aspirate this one, the crystals you'll see will be positively bifringent rhomboid shaped as well. So in comparison to the needles in gout. So that covers pseudo gout. Um, I guess we'll finish off with uh, the seronegative spondyloarthropathies. So they're a bit not as high yield, but um, you need to be aware of them, I suppose. They won't ask you a whole KFP on it, but we can go through some of them. Um, so they're seronegative, which means that when you test for rheumatoid factor, that'll be negative. So that's why it's called seronegative. And the hallmark is enthesitis. Um, so that's typified by dactylitis and you'll get the sausage shape digits. Um, so there's about five you can mention. So there's psoriatic arthritis, um, ankylosing spondylitis, reactive arthritis, enteropathic arthritis, and then you get the juvenile idiopathic arthritis or the Stills disease. So it's psoriatic arthritis. So it's um, the joint disease that's present in psoriasis and it happens 10 to 40% of the time. Um, sometimes you'll get the joint disease even before the skin manifestations start to occur. Um, with ankylosing spondylitis, so this is a chronic progressive inflammatory disorder. Um, the classic case you'll see is it's, it's uh, back pain in a young male. Um, so it primarily affects the sacroiliac joints and spine, and it's actually quite debilitating. Um, on the x-ray, you'll actually, the spine will actually start to look like a bamboo. So it's a bamboo spine appearance. Um, so it's associated with the HLA B27 and that increased risk of the spinal fracture. So reactive arthritis um, used to be known as Rider syndrome, but apparently Rider is a Nazi, Nazi or something. So maybe. that had to be changed. Yeah. Um, so this is aseptic. Did you know that? <laughs> oh, yeah. What? I know it was a Nazi. Yeah. Yep. Can't have rheumatoid things named after Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a reactive arthritis is aseptic joint inflammation. So aseptic. Um, and it can be from a gastro or a genitourinary infection. So it's commonly in the young adults um, and most commonly when it's a, a genitourinary infection, it's from chlamydia. Um, and some of the gastro triggers can include salmonella or shigella. So you can remember reactive arthritis by can't see, can't pee, can't climb trees. So when you can't see, that means you'll get the conjunctivitis or the uveitis. You can't pee, you'll get the urethritis, and then can't climb trees, obviously the arthritis. Then you have the enteropathic arthritis, so that's when you have the joint disease associated with IBD, um, along with all the other extra intestinal manifestations of IBD. It occurs about two to 20% of the time. Um, and then you have the juvenile idiopathic arthritis, um, and then when that occurs in adults, it's called adult onset Stills disease. 
So the juvenile idiopathic arthritis you guys will learn about in your pediatric rotation. Um, it's the most common arthropathy and there's very different subtypes. The key diagnostic feature is it, it has to be arthritis more than six weeks um, and that risk of anterior uveitis. Um, with both of these, with both the juvenile and the adult onset still disease, um, the classic rash is a salmon pink rash. So if you see that on MCQ, you should start thinking about those conditions. That's just a brief overview of the seronegative spondylarthropodes. So they're not high yield, but it's good to be aware of them. All right. So I think that wraps up our podcast today on rheumatological conditions. Always a bit of a, well, I found at least a tough one to study for, for exams, but hopefully uh, we've given you a little bit of a framework for everyone to sort of jump off and have a crack as we lead into these uh, dark and challenging times with exams coming through. Um, so we hope to get this out to you soon. This will be our last podcast in the series that we do uh, for the year as part of uh, Mint for 2020. We hope that you have appreciated them. We hope that uh, they gave you some sort of, you know, help launch pad to work off your study. Um, feel free to, to write in or uh, call us or just see us on the ward and give us some uh, much appreciated feedback. Um, but we've really enjoyed kicking off and starting this one. Hopefully they uh, go on into the future. Um, and yeah, best wishes for all your upcoming exams. I'm sure you all do very well. And uh, this is the team from Mint uh, signing off for the podcast series of 2020. So see you later, guys. See ya. Bye.